I was going to ask you, I have, I have a couple of friends who are Wobblies, but they always seem too serious to ask them, like, why they include international and worldwide in their name. Um, it seems <laughs> really, uh, like that's my, con my I'm, I'm going to help the working class by correcting their grammar. <laughs> Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening, and thank you especially to any of you who have taken a moment uh, sometime recently to recommend the show to a friend. That is how most people find out about Slee Ricketts, including today's guest, Philip Metris, who learned about the show from a personal recommendation he got from Elijah Blumoff, the host of the Versecraft podcast and a an upcoming guest on this podcast. Thank you, Elijah. Thank you, Philip. Uh, thank you to everybody who who's passed the word along. And special thanks also this week to some Secret Show subscribers who uh, not only signed up and got access to a bunch of extra and <laughs> uh, extra gossipy episodes on the Secret Show, but also. Uh, joined the Substack chat and recommended questions for my conversation with Philip Metris. We had a, a little bit of a back and forth about political poetry, the nature of political poetry, the value of political poetry. I talked with Jonathan about it on a previous episode, and Philip uh, has a very different perspective on the question and was an incredibly good sport coming on and really digging in. Like, we really got at some of these questions and he was not at all uh, shy about about disagreement, about re-examining some things. I, I think we still don't totally share a perspective on the matter, but we agreed on more than I expected we would. And he could not have been a nicer, more generous guy. Philometris is the author of umpteen books of poetry, criticism, and translation. He's uh, translated a ton of Russian poets, including Arseny Tarkovsky, father of Andrei Tarkovsky, the great Russian filmmaker. His most recent collection of poetry is Shrapnel Maps, which we do talk about a little bit in this conversation. We also talk about two essays that Philip wrote about politics and poetry. Uh, one is called From Reznikov to Public Enemy, and the other is called Black Lives Matter and the Poetics of Justice. We talk about all of that and more. This is this is kind of a long episode, but I, I just wanted, I didn't want to cut any of it out because I think it's all pretty valuable. What else? Oh, I realized there's a funny moment late in the recording when, when because of the overlapping audio, it sounds like I, I say that prison is that going to a going inside of a prison is, is it's really impressive, and I swear I was saying it's really oppressive, but it, it's slightly confusing. Anyway, apart from that, it was a it was a terrific conversation, and I am very grateful to Philip Metris and to you for listening. I hope you enjoy. You sent me these two really meaty articles about political poetry, and 
and you, I mean, you've been even in our exchanges, like an ex incredibly good sport about, you know, I, it's something I have, you know, some exposure, less exposure to lately, but you know, like my, my coming of age in poetry was kind of among avant-gardists and post-Langpo people. And, and that the, the, the trends have shifted away from that some, but it's, but I see some, like even in some of the blurbs or some of the notes on here, people refer to your work as avant-garde or experimental. And I think you like, that is a, as you said, like that's a, that's a term it's hard to apply to oneself. But I think like you, you know, you are, you know, you, you have a different set of maybe givens or like a default sensibilities with poetry than I than I have or am really used to lately. Um, but uh, but I found your articles really compelling, even when I disagreed with them. So I, I did, I sent you a handful of questions and I actually got more from some listeners since then. Um, we'll, we'll see what, you know, what we're, we're able to get to. But I did first sure. want to give you a chance, um, being such a good sport, to to jump in on any on any dumb or weird things Jonathan or I said or, or have come up in the podcast at all that, you know. Well, I think that, um, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, that Marianne Moore about poet, uh, poem about poetry in which she says, you know, I too dislike it. Yeah. Um, and I've always had a lover's quarrel with even the concept of political poetry or activist poetry or resistance poetry. So I come to uh, my interest in it, not out of a sense of absolute zealous commitment to the concept, but a desire to work out these two parallel strains or passions in my own life, which is one, this absolutely um, just head over heels passion for poetry on the one hand. And sometimes that's, you know, that's also like a, a, a lover's quarrel there, but also sure. a passion for and a desire for, you know, social change, trying to find ways to make this world just a little bit more peaceful, a little bit more just, a little bit more equitable. My father was a Vietnam veteran and uh, his experience in that conflict, uh, that war was deeply formative, I think, to his own sense of what the world was like and also how, uh, how I saw the world because, you know, he was somebody who, you know, we were speaking about being fathers earlier, yeah, yeah. who had a lot of depression and anger and confusion, I think, about how that war went down and, and his part in it. And so I think being interested in what is this thing called war, how it so deeply impacts people, even if they don't have visible wounds on them was something that just was part of my life from a very early age. And I think that that's part of the deeply personal reason why I've always been trying to think about, you know, how can the arts play a role in deconstructing or undoing uh, the, you know, the, the glory of war or the, the urge toward violence that seems both, you know, personal and then collective. So just to go back to that sense, like yeah. I, I don't come to this with any sense of desire to convert you to any sort of opinion on it. Just like sure. how can poetry be a technology for change, you know, really? I mean, that's the the question I think I, I'm always more interested in than what does this poem mean or even what is this poem about? And, you know, what does it do? Uh, because that to me, like that is part of the, that's part of what's so powerful about 
the lyric is that it's it has a purpose which is to convey a feeling to, to charge up the reader with something that you know was once in the writer i guess like the and i had a number of listeners write in with sort of versions of this question because i that, that i keep coming back to which is i think like your your goals and your 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 perspective are totally Relate, like totally familiar and difficult to refute. Like you can't say like, well, I don't want there to be, you know, social change. I don't want the world to be a more peaceful place. Uh, and of course, you know, I also, um, we're all uh, uh, in love with and in um, at war with poetry. But I guess the question, the, the most fundamental question I have about this sort of thing is why poetry? as a way to do that. And I think so, like some listeners wrote and said, like, why poetry rather than prose or journalism, you know, why, or, but also, you know, another wrote like why poetry rather than a, an art form that has more popular momentum right now. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know if there's, there's a meaningful question to answer to that, or if the answer is just because you love poetry. I, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no. Yeah. Right. I know. And, and, I observe in, in a lot of your really interesting conversation with Jonathan and, and elsewhere that you have that thing that we often have about poetry, which is this self-abnegating sense of its smallness, actually. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and which is true on some, you know, popular level. We're not talking about, you know, the, the best-selling poets sell, you know, a pittance of copies compared to, you know, whatever the best biographies, the best novels or whatever. And that's just talking about books. We're not talking about reach of yeah. songs or films and stuff like that. So there is a kind of smallness. And, you know, if I, I suppose whatever our genre is or whatever our um, site of labor is, I think that can be a site of change, right? So okay. um, rather than saying I chose poetry to make social change, I was a poet and therefore saw I wanted to work out these questions that I had as a citizen, as a person, as a human being in this uh, in this technology of art that we call poetry. That doesn't mean that it's the most efficacious, of course, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's also been true like just throughout history that people have always used all of the arts, including poetry, used maybe as a term that I don't want to employ here, but have turned to poetry as a medium for that intense emotional engagement with the subject, considering perhaps even ultimate things. Yeah, so I, I don't feel like I, I wanna sort of stake a claim. I mean, in some sense, I feel sort of embarrassed the way you feel embarrassed. Sure, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, oh, why <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, it seems absolutely patently absurd. And yet, you know, I think that, you know, as, as we all know as poets, we're often called upon during uh, weddings and funerals to, mm. to to share some words. And so people, even as a deep poetic, uh, unpoetic a culture as the United States is, uh, poets still find themselves tapped in moments of real uh, important ritual in our lives, you know, births, weddings, deaths. Um, so we have a sense that it, that it is something that's valuable and necessary in those kinds of moments of encounter with ultimate meaning, I guess. Yeah. I'll just stop there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. Cause I don't know. I, I do. I mean, I, I do know like friends who have had this experience more 
directly. I mean, and I, and I get, well, now that I'm thinking about it, I have too. I've, I was asked to write a poem for a wedding, but I think usually what, usually that task or that obligation is, in my experience, is is not so much to come up with something to say as to find the right words that may already exist. I mean, to, to be somebody who knows like much, many, many more times I've been asked, like, what would be something good to read? What would be, you know, and I, and I do think that that's one way in which we, we have a, it, it may mean that people aren't especially listening, but there is a, there is like an actually powerful ritual element to people wanting to hear a certain kind of, a certain kind of language or, or certain kind of sound, or just have a sense that like, this is a thing that ought to be done if only you know, uh, let's thought Larkin, if only that so many deadline around, if, if only because we've done it so many times before. Right. But I don't right. know if that, I don't know if that has any relationship to poetry as a means of change. That seems like more like poetry is, it's like the thing I remember hearing in sociology class that like in any given, and this may be changing now, but like in any given room, uh, like classroom, typically you would have even if there was the same number of boys and girls in the class, you'd have many more girl names than boy names because like, like boy names can be like, there were just a, sm a smaller number because they were often chosen for the sake of continuity and tradition. Whereas girl names were chosen for the sake of like a personal expression or individuality. Hmm. Uh, and I, and I, with poetry, I, we certainly talk about individual poets expressing themselves, but it does seem like the thing people are most, drawn to is is the other side of it is the that continuity and connection i mean this this sort of gets at this question about audience of course which is yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of a, a a morass of uh wondering you know uh, yeah. what is what is the poet's audience well who, you know, who's course, your audience like i guess like both who are you thinking of when you're writing and then also maybe who who actually is your audience who actually reads yeah. your work it's really varied and, and sort of shifted over time. And sometimes, you know, in, from poem to poem. Um, yeah. and, and really, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll just do a sidebar before I talk about my own uh, sure. writing. But, uh, Tom McGrath has this wonderful distinction he makes between strategic and tactical poetry. Okay. And he's, he's really talking about political work, political poetry. Right, right. For him, uh, tactical a tactical poem is a kind of occasional poem it's a poem written with a very specific audience in mind a specific moment in time trying to affect some kind of impact on a reader some if not change then uh then further resolve for the reader if it's a community of like-minded folks and the other is the strategic poetry uh, which is more visionary right it's sort of a bigger picture an attempt to say something, uh, uh, an attempt to create something of consequence, of vision that can enable us to see another way of being, I suppose. And I just really like that distinction because um, in, in a distinction like that, it just opens up a space for, hey, you're gonna have these one-off poems that mm -hmm. aren't really meant for eternity, but they're meant for a specific community, a specific occasion. And then there may be other poems that are attempting to do something more broad and more um, perhaps nebulous in, a, in, a, in an immediate context, but perhaps more meaningful in the long run. 
And I, I suppose I have a, a similar relationship to that question between tactical and strategic. You know, for example, when I was working on Shrapnel Maps, this book of poems uh, that, that's really dealing with and wrestling with the Palestine-Israel conflict, yeah. I had in mind that I wanted to be part of a conversation among American readers about our relationship to that place and particularly, you know, our, the U.S. government's position and relationship to that place. But what I didn't realize is that I think it, what, what has been revealed to me by the readers who've commented on it that was I was really thinking about Jewish readers in a, in a particular way that I didn't understand. I live in a predominantly modern Jewish Orthodox neighborhood, so I'm surrounded by people who are sort of living in, in, in a world and in a sort of religious context that I, that I don't have and I don't share. Uh, uh, but I'm aware of just this community and, and thinking about their relationship to Israel in particular. Um, so so that, that's like a very specific example of, I was just trying to write some poems that, that might help us see the humanity and the complexity, but also the deep, profound uh, injustice that's happening there as well. And what, what, what emerged was, um, not only was I writing for my own self-clarity, which I think all poets do, but also thinking about the particularly painful conundrum for, uh, for Jewish readers. And, you know, I'm, as you probably are aware, the, the Jewish communities tend to have a, a deeply profound relationship to social justice and, and Jewish people have always been on the vanguard of, you know, wanting equality and, and justice and change. And, and Israel presents a really difficult example in that case. So, so that's just a specific example yeah, of yeah, yeah. You know, writing first for self-clarity, second for uh, to, to sort of be part of a larger conversation. And third, like realizing that there was a specific gesture in those poems, which had to do with my location geographically, you know, right. as well as rhetorically. Well, and, and this is where I think I, like, re, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, I read most of your book, Travel Maps, this morning, and I I was surprised, for one, by how much I, like, I, I, get, I think, like, I, I hear, even if you don't yourself claim it, like, I hear avant-garde or experimental, and I think, like, I'm not going to understand this. I'm not, so I was surprised, like, by, it, it is, it is actually quite, lucid to to a degree that like i then don't know suddenly i become doubtful about like well what does avant-garde mean does it mean you use your punctuation weirdly it's like you you do but other than that I, you know it's like i can i can pretty much understand this but but also like i think one of the things that makes me most squeamish about the idea of political poetry personally is that i feel like well if i were to set out to make the world a better place with a poem i would have to first like know how to make the world a better place I would have to have some kind of answer that, that I would then transfer sure. to the reader. And I, and I feel like I, the only thing I can claim any kind of authority on is like, well, I have felt this and right. I can like, maybe I can try to communicate that yeah. feeling to you. Even um, you, you mentioned, is it Tom McGrath who yeah, talked about Tom. the technical versus the strategic, right. even there, I think it would, and, and he, I, I'm totally with him and identifying like the, the occasional poem as a sort of its own, its own animal. Uh, and then, and then there are poems that have different kinds of ambition. I also would say, like, there are poems for me where I I'm I'm maybe not shooting for the stars, but I am shooting for something sort of specific and 
you know, that like there, there are poems that are small, but effective at a small thing. Um, so that, like there are differences in scale and ambition, but when he talks about like a strategic poem where you have a greater effect you're trying to achieve or a greater plan, because that's what I really think of when it comes to strategy, like in chess, you know, tactics are about a, a, a small scale maneuver within the next few moves to get the better of your opponent, where strategy is about the larger motion, the larger plan. And so I think especially when it comes to like a plan, that's where I, I feel m most lost. And so reading your book, I, I found like there were, I was often moved by the poems. They tended to be poems in which the result was a, a deepening sense of somebody's perspective or of an irreducible complexity to borrow a term from the creationists, I guess, by accident. Um, where like there's a, it's a, oh, it's a poem I particularly enjoyed that's, I mean, it's dark, but I found it like really funny um, where you'll see if I can get you to read it. Boy, I did like this one. Um, I usually am not a fan of, of uh, whimsical typography, but this chorus poem I, I like this. It's so difficult to read because you, you you blow up all of the words. But I think in in context, the the experience of struggling to piece them together ends up being actually pretty pretty effective. Um, Thank you. You have a, you have a poem um, that's family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you're, and I can't tell always which ones are like parts of larger poems, or you know, I I tend sure. to see them in a bit. But you have this poem about being at a lecture and hearing two people stand up, and I think. Would you would you just read that for us if you have it? Oh, absolutely, have, absolutely. Yeah. Honestly, I, I often began uh, readings when I was, um, you know, uh, doing readings for the book with this poem because it does, I think, articulate the problem on a couple different levels. Uh, but without explaining it, let me just read it, and then we yeah, can, yeah. You can tell me why you wanted me to read it and stuff. So uh, it's called Family. At the Catholic University, a speaker clicks through slide after slide of barbed wire, cattle shoot checkpoints, and walls. His mantra? Occupation. What threatens the Christians, he concludes, is what threatens Palestinians. A woman stands up. I wanted to let everyone know, she says, that this talk was full of spin. I can't see her. She's behind me. I'm afraid to look back. The truth is the opposite. My heart goes out to her, standing in the heart of another country. The reason for the wall was that people were being attacked, she says, by terrorists. After all, the Arabs sold the land. It was too much trouble. I shrink back in my seat. And at a Catholic school, you should know what the church has done, especially during World War II. Then a man gets up. I can't see him. He's behind me. I'm afraid to look back. The Jews bought a tiny bit of land, but the rest, the rest was stolen. My heart goes out to him standing in the heart of another country. But, he says, they did not buy everything, even if they buy Congress. I shrink again. She says, you have 14 Arab countries. Can't we have just one? They should take you in. He says, but this is our land. Why should we have to leave? Because Europe took it from us? That is why we fight. What, is it, what about peace? Someone mumbles. He says, how can you negotiate over a pizza when one side continues to eat? She says, how can you negotiate over a pizza when one side's trying to stab you with knives? It goes on like this for a long time. Years, decades, generations. I sit like a child at the table, watch parents grip utensils, spit words like shrapnel. I hate how I love them. 
ashamed, I look down, unable to bury the hot metal. And then that image of shrapnel does uh, uh, track through the whole uh, the whole book, and obviously is in the title as well. Yeah, I mean, I had the experience in reading this poem that I have when I read a good lyric, which is that I I recognized a feeling and I felt it evoked in me again, and it seemed well put, and I was interested in seeing how it would be, you know, like how it would be complicated further. The obviously the subject matter is this, you know, at least in this context, seemingly irresolvable conflict in Israel and Palestine. The emotion that most I most related to, though, was the speakers was like the feeling of like, I, I oh, God, it's I, I get where this person's coming from. And and like, boy, this is. It's going to be a tough crowd. It's going to be like a, like a, you know, it's a, you require some bravery to stand up. And then immediately the person says something, you think like, oh, no, don't say that. Oh, no. Oh, I wish you like, I, you know, like, I know what, you know, it's like when you're, you know, uncle says like, but all lives matter. And you're like, no, I know what you're saying, but don't say that. Don't, oh God, like I get it, but just please. So that like the shrinking and the, the sympathy and then, and then even like the poor, the poor fool in the audience saying like, well, what about peace? It's like, oh, dude, don't start with that shit. <laughs> like to me, I, I, I just really sympathized with that, with that like useless, but universal empathy that, that the speaker seems to experience. And I, you know, and I think like that, this was, this was one of the lighter moments. There is also the, the opening poem that I know you, you've read a number of times elsewhere about the uh, just a dispute over trees. Actually, just last night, my wife and I watched the Banshees of Inisherin. Um, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, yeah, I am. I am the last person to apply a political interpretation to a work of art. I couldn't help watching it, but think like this has has to be about occupied territory and disputed land and willingness to spite yourself in order to injure someone else. And, and interesting. Like, yeah, I'd be interested. To, like, given your the depth that you've dealt with in this. I'd be interested to hear what you think yeah. once you see it. Yeah. I, I um, have heard someone say on, on a, a comment to uh, someone's review online that they had, they were thinking, and I don't know, apparently there are fingers or something that are cut yeah, off, but yeah. something about um, reflecting on the, the loss of Northern Ireland or something like that. Oh, I think, yeah. I mean, and it takes place during the, the war of independence too. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so that, that scans. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and I think that what you're articulating there is that sense of how one in a conflict would prefer to become monstrous rather than yeah. perceive to give up something that they think is their, their dignity and right. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And well, and, and this is where I think like I totally believe in the ability of poetry to to expand one's sense of a like what is possible within human experience. Like that, like that's right. I mean, if there's anything that narrative or or lyric is good at doing, it's uh it's arousing uh, fellow feeling, right? And and it's like the, the poems that were I found most affecting were in you have a long sequence that's sort of a like a closet drama verse play and monologues about a suicide bombing and i think the three that like most uh felt were most indelible at least on a first read were the the monologue by the suicide bomber and then uh the monologue by his 
I don't know, wife, girlfriend, sister, somebody close to him who, who, who is about to become a suicide bomber and then changes her as a change of heart right. and doesn't. And then the other one that was, I thought like, I almost had felt like you were the one standing in the crowd shouting. I was like, Oh, Oh, oh no. Whoa. whoa. Uh, but it was like, I mean, fascinating was this poem about, and it's voiced by two of the victims, I believe, because it's, it's fictional, but then you do this, you do like a, a Coen brothers thing where you, you open by dedicating it to the memories of all these people who then seem to be fictional characters, but you have the, um, what's the one? Oh, Avi and Ibrahim chorus mm -hmm. where, yeah. Would you read that? Sure. If you have it. Absolutely. I don't think I've ever read this poem. In fact, oh, I, you know, for readings, I have really avoided the sequence, as you can imagine, <laughs> for a lot of different reasons. You do um, sort of need the context of like, it would be probably hard to separate these. But this is just like, this is this is spoken by some people. These are like victims in in the immediate, I mean, this is the, the immediate wake of or aftermath of the explosion. And it all kind of takes place from they're kind of in and out of time and space, uh, it seems. Yeah. I mean, the poem is called Avi and Ibrahim, a chorus. I'll, maybe I'll just read it and then we can talk yeah. about it for a minute. It's because I wanted it to happen, longed and waited. Let there be flash and flood. I said, let there be black and acrid choking lungs. I said, send rivulets of red plaster in the scalp democratic and dark hovering over the surfaces of everything. Let there be Klieg lights and sudden cameramen and lens and cordons policing the scene, the secular expanse of a cafe now sacred by blood. And let us sing this memorial to the lost, this blessed loneliness. Let there be blood to remind our people who we are and what we have suffered at the gloves of our oppressor, those long and desolate years our lips probing a font from a rock, to remember that this is nothing if not war. And in this tide of blood, we all get what we want. And there was, at least in the copy I have, there was one word you left out that I think is small, but maybe important, which is, I said, yes, send rivulets of red plaster oh, yes. and scalp. Yeah, Democrat. Yes, the, the, and, and that's, I mean, that's what's so appalling and also persuasive about this poem is that it, it people who were who effectively saying like, like I wish somebody would blow up this fucking cafe. Like I wish that. Like I like let's let's let there be no mistake about what this is. Let's. I want these people to show their true colors, and I would like. I want to be a victim in this terrorist attack for the sake of like making this point. And it's it's like an unspeakable feeling, but it also totally rings true. Like I mean, I think this is a, a really extreme version of it, but that kind of. Again, like that willingness to spite oneself, that kind of blinding, you know, anger and bitterness is so human. I mean, I think like the feeling I had with all of these poems was like, I'm really touched by this and I feel connected to this experience or this perspective, some of which were much closer to what seemed like your own perspective and so others were very far away, but they all circled like both the, the, the tensions within your your own neighborhood between kind of Arab and Jewish culture and even like little, they're like these nice sort of very familiar moments where like the, the daughters because of various religious regulations aren't allowed to play with one another. And, uh, you know, they, they either orbit that or, or this crisis in Israel and Palestine, but it didn't seem to me that the 
poems, at least the ones that I was most affected by, were had a plan or knew how to make the world a better place other than to say, <laughs> well, other than to say, like, here is a way one can be. And like, here is yeah. how one might relate to this way of being that might right. be unfamiliar to you, which is to me like, that's the, like, that is a good thing, but I don't know that that's, is that even political? Like, isn't yes. that just what good lyric does? And in that case, I wonder like, well, what is this McGrath strategy nonsense about them? Okay. Well, uh, I would agree with you that I think um, there's something to be said for that argument that Chekhov makes that art is about posing the questions rather mm -hmm. than offering answers. So in general, you know, we thrive, we meaning artists and people in the humanities thrive by asking the right questions because so often the right questions aren't even being asked. Mm -hmm. um, so that I think that that is actually political as well in the sense that um, when we encounter the truth of, of something, that is different than all of the endless ideological screens and propaganda and confusion that is part of our daily life and trying to understand how we actually are relating to each other in these systems and structures that in, in which we find ourselves that we're not necessarily authors of, but we somehow, you know, either benefit or, or um, are harmed by. Um, so that that to me that that is is important just to sort of begin with wonder that curiosity that question. The second is, and I, I love that you said that. And I've, I'm very grateful that you felt that way. That that in some sense it helped you, it deepened your sense of what human experience might look like in this situation that we sure. often think is totally other than our own, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that seems kind of important to me, and that's that's no different than say you know Greek you know, theater piece or anything like that. Um, it reminded me, honestly, a lot of this reminded me of the kind of political poem that like that Yeats would write, which was often like a poem of a bystander who's like, oh, I'm not really into this stuff. But like, he, he can't help but but just talk about the people he knows. You know, these yeah, sisters who get, who like were too extreme and they got pardoned and they're like, or these, these this like guy who's a douchebag that he fucking couldn't stand, but then he becomes a martyr. And it's like, well, I, I can't not acknowledge that. That's a lot of what this felt like, but it, but those, I mean, part of what makes those really enduring poems, I think, is that they're not simply waving a flag. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. So the next, it's not a step. These things are kind of all in relationship. They're not like, oh, tears of, sure. you know, politicality or something. But I, yes, uh, to me, Easter 1916, Yeats's poem about the Easter Rising is uh, a model of a certain kind of, I think, deeply responsible political poetry insofar as it, to me, it's the greatest embodiment of that offhanded um, quotation that I think is from one of his prose books in which he says, um, out of the argument with others, politics, out of the argument with ourselves, poetry. Actually, yeah. he doesn't say politics, he says rhetoric, right? Right, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and so that sense of, that in Yeats, that, that this argument with ourselves, this struggle, this conversation with ourselves is modeling a certain kind of political responsibility, I think, that's saying, I can see what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I see the glamor in it, actually, the, the terrible beauty of it. But there's something in me that also resists that as well, because I see the rivulets of blood. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
And so I think that there's something very powerful for Yeats to have made a kind of stance in the middle of a completely justifiable rebellion and resistance to mm. British imperial rule, which had a lot of devastating impacts in Ireland. So I, I think that there's something there that that actually, to me, he's like one of my heroes because mm. he was both able to see what was happening and why it was happening and also uh, register his own complicity in the failure to act, but also say that there's something there that that's worth paying attention to. This, the, that terrible beauty, you know, which which he wrote before the outcome was decided, right. you know, and um, so there's a kind of prophetic clarity there that I think is deeply honest, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I, I want to stop there in case you wanted to pick yeah. up. No, I mean, but I think like part of what I take from that model, and I don't, you know, I don't actively pursue political subjects the way you do again i think partly because like i think like people should write about what they're moved to write about totally and like so if that's an experience that is then talked about in political conversations then like great like again you you have to do it you have to use if you're going to use the lyric or you know you have to sort of use the, the tools you have and i do wonder like, so you, you had these two essays. Um, one is sort of specifically responding to, I don't know if you want to call it a rise or re renaissance of Black Lives Matter during 2020. Um, or is it kind of because it, it started in 2014, 13 or so, and then it kind of yeah, yeah, it achieved its, yeah, achieved its height in 2020. And partly you're writing about that and the, the role of poetry and even specifically of of people who are not black, but have an investment in poetry and kind of what that can, what role you can play or what you can do. And so there's a sense in that essay of like a poet as you have this model you draw from someone, I forget, there's this, this elaborate web of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who it's, it's, um, during the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, racial justice activist Deepa Iyer shared a helpful visual called mapping our roles in a social change ecosystem. While it's not complete, it does offer us ways for thinking about how we might play a role in movements for social justice, not just as writers. And then she has in the center a circle that says equity, liberation, justice, solidarity. And then around it in circles, there's a circle that says weavers, one that says guides, storytellers, healers, disruptors, caregivers, builders, visionaries, frontline responders, experimenters. And I think like it's not that any one of these roles or jobs in itself seems false or or non-existent though some of them are a little more vague than others but i think like the the my two-fold response was like one this is starting to get to the like geometric chart of abstractions that i associate with like business jargon um <laughs> and then and then the other part is like I, I think like part of what makes yates so good at what he's doing in that poem and part of what makes i think you good at what you're doing in this book is that is that you're actually not part of a conglomerate like you're you're actually sort of standing <laughs> apart like you don't you know you're the liberty you have as a poet is that you get to take on these different perspectives but the part of the cost of that is you don't really get to belong like you don't really get to be part of this you're not really like you don't get to be a cog in the machine that's you know you have to sort of be your own lonely self so yeah i mean i i felt like this like this was an essay in particular that 
Um, and you talk like the be I mean, the best parts of this essay are when you just talk about individual poems. And you do talk for one about the the Jericho Brown um, poem that uh, Jonathan yeah. and I talked about a little bit, among right. among uh, some others. The Claude McKay, the great like like shit. It's electrifying that sonnet of his. Is, if we must die, which is just I'll just qu quickly read it. If people don't know it, like this is a call to fucking arms. <laughs> this is Claude McKay writing in 1919. If we must die, let it not be like hogs hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. O kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men, we'll face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. And that's a, I mean, that's a poem where I, I partly want to, I can't help but think of like the like um, speeches given by like characters in plays, like Henry V. And so it, like part of me wants to, like wonders how that poem becomes more complex when you put it in quotation marks. But at any rate, like you, you talk about a number of like good poems in here. Uh, and that's that I found like the most, like grounding part of it but i also just like i this was a poem an essay where i started to feel myself bedazzled or bewildered the way i sometimes do in the in like in the presence of like academic writing where i think like oh sure. no this is somebody with a much bigger vocabulary than me this is really smart and he, like <laughs> it's hard for me to i can't really refute anything he's saying but i start to i'm just starting to drown and abstract you know so i i like this was effective as a piece of rhetoric and, and like and then I was glad just to have these poems brought up, but but then I also like reading this and then reading your book. I think like, well, I don't really see. This doesn't seem like the same kind of project. And even like in the best of these poems in here, it it not no one of them is really uh, accountable to any philosophy of political poetry or social justice poetry. Like it, yeah. It seems like each one of them in its in their best moments, each one of those poems. Is again, it's it's a loner. It's a, it's his own man, his own woman, doing something that doesn't quite fit comfortably into any program. So yeah, I mean, uh, so I wrote my my dissertation, uh, which I tormented myself with for about ten years, uh, beginning <laughs> as an undergrad and then through grad school and then finally <laughs> as a book, uh, was really about the tracking the the interactions or intersections between poets in the peace movement. It's called Behind the Lines, War Resistance Poetry on the American Home Front. And basically that's what I came to. Like my argument ultimately was what, what I'm interested in is po uh, poetry and poets who are executing kind of intricate dance between the claims and um, necessities of their, of their genre, of their art and also the claims and desires and wants of the community to which they are, in, in which they're uh, relating or to which they would like to have uh, a communication and relationship. And so I think that one of the things that I would, that I want to problematize in our conversation, not to sound like a like an academic jerk, but no, no, it's no, a complicated, no. this idea it's that- my best friends are academic jerks. Poet crowd, right? And that, yeah. that's, that's the kind of dominant model of lyric, but I, I think that, when, when you look at specific poems and poets in relationship and community, that, that becomes much more interesting and complicated. 
um, we have a tendency to kind of want to just have foreground and background and not look at the ways in which foreground and, and background text and context are, are deeply enmeshed and in, in, in contact and in communication. That's the stuff that we can't usually see very easily um, on the surface of the language, but is is implicit in a lot of different ways. It becomes explicit in political poetry. That's why it annoys people so much, right? Is that right. Uh, there's not that everything becomes too obvious and too clear. There's no sense of the the I don't know the 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 romance of of mystery that so many great lyrics have, where we're not really sure where we are and where we're going. Or the, I mean, the, what I think like what. Clanth Brooks calls the heresy of paraphrase. Like, if you can paraphrase it, then it's not a poem. Is that you know? And and so I, I think like if you can, if you can boil it down to here's the message, then right. Um, and that that's where like then the the other essay, which which was, had, I mean, obviously had sympathies and and over overlapped with this one, but had a different focus, was about documentary poetry. And you have there are a few different investigative slash documentary slash social poetics. And you talk about poetry that does documentary work. There is an example of this in your book that I was, it seemed both like important from a documentary perspective. And then I was a little bit puzzled with it from a poetic perspective. So you had this document that you, that a woman who comes and speaks to you, you give a class every year on Palestinian conflict. What's the name of the class? Uh, it's called Israeli and Palestinian literatures. Okay. Um, so the woman comes and she gives a presentation to your class and she was in what's, what was called, and I still am vague on some of this, but it's called the Nakba, the, is it like catastrophe? Right. Yeah. Uh, where Arabs were fled or were driven out of, um, and it seemed like the, the comparisons I have often seen as to the Trail of Tears, uh, were driven out of parts sure. of their home. And this was, she, so she left there in 1948. And this document she found was something that her father had kept that was, uh, that seems to be a uh, like a list of protocol made by the British, uh, or no, at least actually, made in collaboration with the British. That was the um, Haganah's uh, flyer statement that they gave to the people that were living in Jaffa um, in, in order to sort of begin their kind of control of the, the region. And yeah. uh, it's written in English, which is really interesting and, and, and very confusing to us at first. But um, since the British mandate had effectively made English the, the, the language of, um, of government, you know, for 27 plus years, yeah. uh, naturally, they, they wrote this document in English as well. But and you wanted to say something about Well, I was, I was going to say, like, the, you, you, you have a note in the back because you have a little, uh, I don't know what you call it, an afterword or an epilogue or something, but you, you talk about in prose, you know, about some of the context of the poems overall. And, and you make the point that, like, this is a document of, like, historical journalistic importance. Like, people need to see this. Like, it's not something that maybe had been either widely available or widely known and so you do publish it in your book, and, she, and you also refer to this woman has her own book uh, that you you urge people to read. But I mean, the thought I had was like, well, I that totally sounds like a document that should be entered into the historical record. And like, yes, that's something people should know about. Like, what it brought to mind was a an annoying thought experiment that our, our co-host Cameron came up with, which was the the theoretical you know, journalist poet in Auschwitz, right? Who 
who writes, who like sneaks into this camp and like documents the conditions there and then publishes a poem that reveals what's happening inside the camp. And the question is like, well, first, like definitely this information, like the the dissemination of this information is is a is an important thing to do. Like just just from a purely journalistic perspective, like people need to know about this. But then it seems like a sort of a totally different question. What, what does that have to do with poetry? Because like he could be, as Cameron posited, like that could even be a very bad poem. But it, you know, to some extent, it wouldn't affect the journalistic value of it. And so that's what I, I mean. And I, and I feel like, thankfully, you're not writing, you know, the Will, William McGonagall verse of Palestine and Israel. But like, it, you know, that was a moment where I thought, like, well, I see the journalistic value, but also, like, well, if it is. If that is really important, like why is it in a book of poems then? Like, wh what what does this have to do with the other thing? Right. Well, I mean, it's, obviously, it's on the same subject, so it's re sure. deeply related. But yeah, I go back to that Mirla Rukeyser wonderful phrase where she says that poems can extend the document, which is such a weird, interesting articulation. But there's a way in which uh, poetry can smuggle in information that we haven't been able to encounter for whatever. I, I go back to that observation you made in an email that exchange where you said this term man days really freaked you out. Which oh, man. Yeah. The, the, right. Which was a kind of a prison term for uh, for, you know, well, I mean, just combining the the, the term and, and the, the people themselves. Yeah, well, it's like man. It's like man hours, but it's it's a term used by by private prisons to measure like basically units of value for themselves because man days that is days that any individual man spends in prison that's the that's like kilowatt hours that's how they measure their their revenue basically um yeah. and it was just like horrifying to encounter that and, and it was it came up in a cd write poem but again i think like th with that with this document from the nakba i thought well shit like that's something worth reading about and like i encountered those things for the first time in poems, but I'm me. I don't read the news. Like I, this is what I, you know, like this is the, like, it seems like if, if the goal is to make people learn about this, then, then that again, seems like a, like there was a, a line, another poet in that, in the, the documentary poetry essay talked about, it's like flying under the radar and getting some information into a poem that had been suppressed in, in print otherwise. And I thought like, well, that's great. If you can get it out in a poem, like, but also, is the reason that nobody's bothering to censor the poem that it's not, like that it's not getting to anyone? Like, is that like you don't have to censor poems? Is that really the? Is that what that tells you? I know, right? Um, or they would they would be too confusing to to actually engage with on any meaningful level, right? Because um, they're they're too complicated. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I, and, it, and, it, yeah. It, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Was it the Denise Levertov flyer in the? Uh, about how to deal with helicopters flying over a protest, or was it some other little oh, detail? It was, I want to say it was a man who had the who wrote that one. I can't remember yeah, because then, then there's also the complicating question that you bring up later of like, oh, another difficulty with documentary poetry is sometimes it's not true. Like, so like, <laughs> like and, th and like then that becomes another reason that like it can be a dubious medium because unlike journalism, I mean, journalism today is another question, but like unlike journalism, you don't have standards of, you don't have fact checkers. You don't have, you don't have to get two sources and this kind of thing. So it, it does to me, like, again, if like, if, 
if you're living under you know Nazi occupied Paris and like you need to be you need to like do a play you need to produce Antigone in order to get the word out about something like great do it go for it but but also like generally speaking particularly in a you know in a an ostensibly free society like why wouldn't journalism yes. be the the avenue well I think one of the things that you're observing is like when I started thinking about this it was almost a pre Twitter social media moment. You know, mm. the first essay I wrote about documentary poetry was, you know, in the early 2000s. And um, the problem I think that that's haunted a lot of my thinking about poetry and its um, relationship to information re relates back to the Gulf War and also, in some sense, the Iraq War, in which knowledge or information about the war was highly curated and highly censored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the problem now we have is almost the reverse problem, which is disinformation, Right. which yeah, is yeah, yeah. there's so many things out there. You simply don't know what's true or what, why, why you're being told yeah. anything. Well, and, and often so, people, the people distributing it don't know whether like it, it, it's not, it's not, you know, I know there are these different terms, disinformation, misinformation, but it seems like it's, it's as much of a problem of the library of Babel as it is a problem of, you know, propaganda. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and knowing uh, unknowingly, you know, moving things along this, these networks of, yeah. of truth or untruth. So yeah, I, I would, I would concur that um, with you that, that these are, that's kind of slippery territory, but the thing we haven't talked about, which maybe yeah. I should just mention also is uh, yeah. Barbara Harlow's book, um, resistance literature, which was published in 1987, was a. It's sort of like one of the small canon of post-colonial theory books that really wants to make a very hard argument for uh, for poetry and and novels as uh, as sort of food for resistance movements, and she means quite literally, you know, armed struggle movements. Right. Yeah, yeah. She, lo she looks at. She looks at Palestine, she looks at El Salvador, she looks at South Africa, she looks at a variety of places where you had these revolutionary guerrilla movements who had whole visions, right? Strategic yeah. visions of not only like what we have to do to resist state power, but also what we're going to replace it with. And so yeah. they needed and and craved and and often were informed by poets and artists and writers who were thinking through what the next steps would be, not in terms of like, uh, would we have ranked choice voting or representational right. democracy, but like the world we wanted to create. And, you know, I wrote that, I read that book when I was in grad school and sort of fought with it on every page because she's really privileging yeah, things yeah. that aren't, aren't really part of the reason why I came into poetry in the first place, yeah. right? Which is that, where where we find language helping us feel more human and understanding the mysteries of what it means to be alive and why yeah. why we live at all and part of it was around information that wasn't being shared part of it was about like creating this vision to help people in their acts of sometimes violent resistance to yeah. the, to their conditions of their oppression and that sort of thing um, so this book was really interesting to me, although I kept struggling with the same thing that you're probably struggling with now, which is like, how how does this have anything to do with the life that I'm living right now, which it, in which I am not probably, I don't believe you are, right. you know, brandishing an AK, getting ready to, you know, start the next revolution, right? Yeah. But I was just really interested in her 
thinking about this very specific community that has a very specific vision and set of goals and how the arts were not totally divorced from that. You know, they had very specific shared visions, but they also, you know, the artists in those cases also challenge the movement from inside. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a very specific example. And and when, and this goes back to Yates in a sense, but Ghassan Kanafani was mm-hmm. one of the most important Palestinian uh, writers. Um, he published a work called Returning to Haifa in the, I think it was the late 60s, in which he explores what it's like for this husband and wife to return to a city that they were expelled from in 1948, the Nakba. They actually had left their son accidentally. They both got kind of split off from their child. And he gets up, uh, he ends up being raised by a Jewish immigrant who comes uh, post-Holocaust. And they meet, they go back to the house not knowing he's there and suddenly he's there and he's serving in the IDF, the Israeli defense force. And they're confronted with like, holy shit, like what the hell is going on here? Like, (laughs) is he ours? Is he theirs? Like what's happening? Um, And it's a, it's this really powerful depiction, not only of these Palestinian parents grieving the loss of their child and the sudden realization that he's still here, but then he's not theirs. And at the same time, this Jewish there's a whole section in there about the, this Jewish woman's experience and her humanity too, and her desire to have a baby which she couldn't have, and then to take care of this child, which was a foundling that was basically that that she inherited because the house was there and he was there. And Kanafani does so well explore the predicament of these these human beings who are in conflict because of their their identity and the states of being in conflict. This is the same guy who was the uh, publicist, the spokesperson for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, which is an organization that was involved in the first hijackings in the late 60s of airplanes, Um, not to run them into buildings, but to raise awareness of the Palestinian cause and to, to, to get prisoners and stuff. He was assassinated in 1972 by most likely by the Mossad. So I mention him as a really interesting example because he, at the end of that story, very clearly makes an argument for why he, why the father who's lost the son twice now will support his other son going into the resistance movement. At the same time that he acknowledges everybody's humanity in that story in this very interesting and powerful way. And so what he's doing at, the, at one and the same time is he's saying to his own uh, group, you know, we can never really demonize these people. We need to know where they come from. We need to understand them in order to uh, to figure out what's next. Uh, at the same time that we believe abs- with absolute conviction that uh, our armed struggle is correct. And reading stuff like that is absolutely mind-blowing because um, it's totally it's totally committed to an idea, but it never lets go of the fact of all of the 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 difficulty of being human, the complexity of the ways in which we are both utterly complicit and, and yet also, also sometimes victims at the same time. Yeah. I mean, that, that does get back to this question that again, a few of the, my listeners put in different terms. We talked a little bit about earlier, like where it does seem like the, the, the intended audience really matters, right? Like if he's writing for fellow resistance fighters, then then he's got a different, I mean, again, because if there's certain things that go without saying, 
right? And it seems to me like that 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 if you know what a writer thinks goes without saying, then you then you've come a very long distance toward understanding what he's getting at. That's really interesting. That's very very powerful. And I would say also just that I think one of the beautiful things about engaging in in the literary arts, whether it's narrative or lyric, or you know prophetic utterance, is that the, we're not entirely in control of the outcome. Not only what no. ends up on the page, but how it's received. Right. And so there's all of this just fascinating and wonderful, you know, uncertainty that's also part of the project. And and I think that's where like like there's a like I think a a very valid criticism of a lot of the poets I really admire and and a lot of what I aim for in my own work is that it is um, I mean you even have the line in here about like uh, uh whether poetry is a museum piece or not and I think like that's a that's a criticism I've heard uh leveled at, at a lot of poetry I I admire or a lot of the 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 goals of the poets I admire that there is a there's a kind of a letter and a bottle quality where they're they're writing poems with the expectation that they don't know who's going to read them or when they will be read or what, like they basically write understanding that any social or political context is going to be outside their control. And so I think the, the knock on those kind of poems is they can feel detached from reality. They can feel sort of socially inert or, or just like mere decoration. But then the trouble with, so much political poetry to me seems that it it either it either needs so much to exist in its occasion or it it runs into the problem of talking to one group while seeming to talk or purporting to talk to another and it's the same thing with so much so much like political discourse where it seems like the whole conversation is not even for the benefit of the people having it but for the benefit of the people they suppose might be listening yeah um, which seemed like, you know, it's like uh, even even some people like, you know, public health professionals get tripped up by that kind of problem. Like, well, totally. what what can we say for the people, for those idiots who misinterpret us? How, what what do they need to hear? Um, yeah, I, I, yeah and, and on both of those accounts, I think that, that those are really important, like living questions for anybody who wants. I'm just thinking about like, OK, let's say that there's a listener thinking like, I would like to write something that is politically engaged but i don't know how and right. i think you've you've set up the things to avoid right <laughs> uh, no I, yeah. I think that's really important like these are the conundrums these are the tr these are the difficulties yeah. um, that you might be fine just as you know if you're writing in in strict metrical form what are the you know there are going to be other difficulties right oh a uh, tendency toward highly unnatural artifice speech, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, loss of a sense of voice, you know, Getting, it's just, yeah, what, yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever, you know, parameters you're choosing, there's going to be ways of uh, flying off the rails or, you know, heading directly into the oncoming train, whatever the metaphor is going to be. And I would just go back to that thing that you said, like, and I totally am 100% agreement that one should write the poems that one is called to write. Yeah. And this, I, so occasionally, some, sometimes people ask me, you know, I'd really like to write, you know, a poem for Black Lives Matter, a poem for whatever. And, and basically what I tell them is like, don't do that. Like, just, 
<laughs> you know, write the poems that, that are going to move you. Write the poems right. that you have to write. And if you're really interested in those political things, uh, in, in a specific political movement, then get engaged in it. You know, do voter registration drives. You know, that's what George Oppen did. You know, he stopped writing for, you know, like, I don't know what it was, 20 years or something, yeah. because he was doing organizing in Mexico. And that was important to him. And then when he came back to writing poems, they were still interesting and had nothing to do with this kind of occasional weirdness. He was really thinking through that the, the relationship between the individual and the society, like of being numerous, that long poem, is just so interesting in trying to uh, unpack the relationship between being an individual human being and being in a, a, a wider so you know social group so and and yeah i mean obviously like you know it's very easy to write poems that you know we're trying to write for i shouldn't say that it's very easy to imagine we can write poems for eternity but we never know what that eternity right. is good yeah, yeah, yeah yeah no yeah you know i think i may have been guilty of a version of what and I've just had a bunch of arguments with people about, about formal poetry recently, but like something that one often hears is what is, you know, I, I can't stand formal poets. They think you have to follow the rules. And I think like, well, wait a minute, they're just writing, like you're talking about people who like to write in meter and rhyme. They're not telling you what you should write. And I think right. I often, sometimes because there are like calls to action, there are like poetry can't be silent on this right now. I think like it's, it's not even necessarily the people who are moved to write about experiences that, you know, butt up against politics that, that trouble me. It's the, the implication that poetry must do this thing. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, the wildest thing is, you know, I, I finished grad school in 2001, uh, my MFA and, and PhD, I did them kind of simultaneously. And it was almost the exact opposite. Like, mm. you know, in my classes, one could not imagine actually using poetry for political reasons. And so, you know, a lot of these arguments that I'm mostly having in my head sure, come yeah. from the way in which I was, uh, the way in which workshops were taught, which is like, right. hang on a second, like, you know, I don't know this information. Like, how should I know this information that you're trying to yeah, share with me? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so there was, and, and now we're almost in an exact opposite uh, moment in terms of, I don't know if it's dominant style, but a kind of feeling that, you know, you ought to be doing, you ought right. to be doing righteous, progressive, politically right. engaged poetry, identity focused, not about another group, about your own experience, you know, all these yeah. sort of rules that we sort of feel are in the air. Um, some, you know, some of which have really important arguments underneath them, but sure. yeah, it, it ends up feeling like a set of diktats, you know, like uh, yeah. requirements and boy, that's such a drag. I mean, didn't we go to poetry to escape all that bullshit? Right, right, right. <laughs> it, it's funny to think about, like, you finished grad school the same year I started college, and that was right, like, the hinge was 9-11. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I wonder how much that colored. Yeah, I think And you see how, like, someone like Elijah, who, from my perspective, is almost, like, like shockingly conservative in his aesthetics, is, is in his own way a rebel. I mean, he's, like, he's... Totally. He, he's, you know, uh, re reacting yeah. to what's around him. Uh, totally. And what I admire, we're talking about Elijah Blumoff. One yeah, of the yeah, things yeah. I, I most respect about him is his insistence, countercultural insistence, that poetry should have a moral aim. Yeah. Moral content. 
And that's radical in our, you know, for the last hundred years, it's very difficult in, you know, most conversations around poetry that anyone would say that. I mean, maybe Eliot for, you know, after his conversion or something like that. But by and large, we've been very allergic to the idea that poetry since, you know, since modernism, uh, that, that it yeah. should have to stake a moral claim. Um, I wonder, and, I wonder, is that, is that a matter of like a different, because I think you're right that like he he is very interested in almost like a personal old fashioned morality in some respects that I think it's not that we haven't had moralizing poetry. It's just that it tends to be of the variety, like rather than you must change your life, it's there ought to be a law. Um, <laughs> and I think like that, like that, because there's plenty of poetry that says that, but it tends to be like things broadly should be different. Whereas Elijah seems more interested in like, like how a, po a poem that speaks to one's own personal responsibility to, to do a better job at, you know, being a good person. Having, having read many drafts of his, you know, essentially as, as kind of manifesto of this. Um, I, I was, I was honestly deeply moved by that. You know, we can all talk about, um, metrics and sound, the essence of sound and, and the importance of other formal structural elements to which, you know, I, I can't imagine poetry without those things really on, on some level. But this inclusion of this thing, which, which we've all sort of bracketed out of a sense of agnostic discomfort with grand narratives and claims and absolute certainties mm -hmm. uh, just, just kind of touches me and moves me because I, I do feel that there's something to be said for it. Um, he's very modest about what it looks like. And I, I appreciate that because a lot of the moralizing uh, gestures in, in poetry tend to be uh, deeply discomforting to me, you know? Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, Just yeah. Discomforted by them in, in political or religious contexts, you know? Oh, I mean, that's like, that's, I, I'm totally, I, I mean, I share that. I just, I have the weird experience of, when I talk to Cameron, I feel like Winston Churchill. And when I talk to <laughs> Elijah, I feel like Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, like, fucking good Lord. I don't, you know. Do you know the, um, there's a Borges short story called Three Versions of Judas. Do you know this? I don't know that story, yeah. It's, a, it's wild. I mean, it has sort of some of his inevitable logic to it where like, it's this, it's about the scholar who kind of pursues this one idea of like, well, Jesus makes this sacrifice of himself. But of course, according to scripture, he, he descended into hell and then he harrowed hell and he rose into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the father. And, and his conclusion is like, well, if he's really sacrificing himself, then, then that's not enough. And that in fact, he must really, that Jesus is actually contrived to go to hell for all eternity for our sins. And so in fact, what he concludes is that Judas is actually the savior. Ah, Judas wow. is, is the, and he, and he spends the, you know, then he's like, like wanders the streets, you know, praying to Judas until he drops dead. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's like typical war history, but I was reminded a little bit of that. And obviously less, less insane version of that with your example that came up in both of your essays of Mark Nowak. Nowak. Yeah. Say a little bit about him. Cause he seemed like a, fascinating example or model or something yeah yeah so, so mark nowak is a poet and he says you know 
I would like, he says, and I don't think it's in the essays, I would like to be a producer now rather than a poet. And what he yeah. means by that is like in a music studio, you have somebody who's sort of helping others create their own art, music, poetry, right. whatever. Dr. So, Dre, yeah. Right, exactly. And so he was like one of the most interesting documentary poets in the early 2000s. Um, with a book that was about the shutdown of factories called Shut Up, Shut Down, and some of, some of the racial violence around that. And then uh, about coal mining disasters in a, in a book called Coal Mountain Elementary. And what he discovered was that although he really liked working with specific communities around these issues, um, that he was feeling increasingly uncomfortable with his sort of summoning or using other people's voices and language for his own constructions and really wanted to kind of flip the classroom, so to speak, right. um, and say, okay, what I really want to do is help these people articulate their own truths. And then whatever I can do to sort of amplify that is going to be my, my work from now on. And so who knows, he may end up doing another book of poems, but I think it's kind of doubtful. Uh, he wrote a book called Social Poetics, which came out, I think, last year, in which he explores history of essentially community and radical workshops conducted throughout the United States. And basically saying, like, there's this whole history of people doing workshops at places like Attica Prison or in a really, really um, economically uh, disadvantaged communities in New York um, and, and elsewhere and look at what they're doing and look at the work that they've created and um, look at how they've articulated a truth and a narrative which we haven't been able to hear because of all the all the reasons. Um, yeah, so so that's that's what he's been about and up to for for a little while now is really uh, doing these workshops with. I, I think that just to be very like specific about a tactical one, he was really involved in organizing workshops for um, home health care providers, people yeah. who are part of that community of sort of um, the, people who are, aren't uh, in a union, but um, but are engaging in work that's that's often, you know, in people's houses. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I forgot the specific term for this kind of care, labor. Care, caregiver or... Uh, yeah, care, yeah. Uh, uh, and people who are often exploited in, yeah, in oh, a variety sure. of circumstances. And so he, he wanted to be part of this movement to create a bill of rights for these sort of home health care workers. Yeah, yeah. And I just think that that's so powerful and beautiful. And his way of doing that was simply creating workshops for people to be able to tell their stories effectively and to become spokespeople in, inside of their own movement. So it's very kind of like Gramscian, you know, like he's going to, you know, work with the workers, basically. Um, right. Well, and help and, me, because I, I know enough to recognize Gramsci as a, as a name and to know that he said something about culture and politics, but I don't really know much beyond that. Uh, well, I mean, a, just, yeah. just a radi radical organizer, you know, in the sense like, I, actually, Gramsci and Yates is kind of an interesting conversation because one of the things he invites intellectuals to do is basically to do a self-inventory. How am I related to all of these systems and stuff that um, that I find myself in, and what and then what can I do about it? 
Um, and so Gramsci is like the paragon of the engaged intellectual. The intellectual is not ultimately about ideas, but about, um, you know, class struggle really for him. Um, no, I, no ideas, but in things. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no ideas, yeah, I mean, no, and that's like, that's what I found so fascinating about Mark Nowak. And because you, you talked about sort of slightly different facets of his work in your two essays, but he seemed like both a like both a refutation and a vindication like he was he was like the most committed like in good faith thorough political poet who like did political poetry so hard and so well that now he just doesn't write it at all and yeah, he like yeah. just runs a nonprofit i mean it, like it right i think which, he yeah. captured the paradox of it right i mean that's right. exactly yeah. Oh, it. yeah yeah um and you know underneath that is that sense one of one of the other questions we didn't quite get to is the sense of like am i doing violence if i am sort of summoning and employing yeah. this language of other people um if they're not uh you know the authors of that final shape that those experiences or language comes to to take and, and I can see your uh, that, that's opening up another can of no, I'm, just like I, I, I am, uh, I am, I have a hard time with like either language or silence is violence. Sure, not because I don't understand that that there can be a relationship between these things, but just because I think, like I, when I first spent a little bit of time studying Marxism in grad school, what I found was like my sympathies kept going out to. The people who were like, oh, this one, this person died because he was <laughs> he was in a, a, a attempted coup. Like this person, died, like like set down this essay and picked up a machine gun. And like, and it's not that I was it was like thrilled by the glory of their violence, but like they were they were like trying to do Marxism, where it seemed like so many of the people we were reading were 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 trying to play with language because that was the that was the thing they could have an effect on right, rather right, than actually right. trying to change anything sub substantial. And so I, I think totally. like when I hear like silence is violence or, or like your language is doing violence, like I think, but like there is such a thing as real violence and there yeah. is like, there are real concrete problems that need fixing. So like, the, I think like my, my annoying question I always ask when I'm confronted with these things is like, well, who's, whose life is being improved by this struggle? Yeah. Is it just? Is it? Ju is this just something to fight about, or is there actually somebody whose life is is potentially yeah, yeah. being improved? It's so easy in our uh, present age to want to just go go along with whatever whatever the crowd is doing and the, and the fist pumping, you know. <laughs> like, well, if, if Billy Bragg humorously saying "revolution is just a T-shirt away," and um, there's something like the the I think the reductio ad absurdum for language poetry is that somehow you know engaging in like. Uh, you know, linguistic experimentation were somehow, um, you know, initiating the revolution. It's absolutely preposterous. And actually, they wouldn't say that either, right? But but it's easy to fall into that trap somehow. Oh, because I'm using, you know, syntax um, in an unusual way. I'm subverting the authority of, right. I don't know, Donald Trump. It's, it's so insane. It's so crazy. Uh, at the same time, like, we can also acknowledge that we all exist in a representational matrix in which all sorts of representations of individuals have deeply psychic uh, 
deep psychic consequences on people as they form their sense of self and identity, right? So if you're a black person in the society up until, you know, quite recently, you would have not seen uh, a wide and nuanced de textured depiction of what it means to be black, right? right? something like that. So, you know, what Edward Said called Orientalism, he said it's that repertory of representations which depicts the Orient as a sort of negative projection of everything we don't like about ourselves right. onto the other, right? That they're inferior, yeah. that they're, they hate their women and blah, 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 blah. Or, so, or like a, an inhuman ideal of one kind or another. Totally, um, yeah. totally. And so, yeah, I also feel like it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's really interesting the way in which uh, some distinctions seem necessary, right? The distinction between, well, I was going to say, you know, between being punched in the face and being insulted with language. I mean, I think that there's actually a difference, right? Yeah, yeah I would say so, yeah. Uh, and at the same time, like, and the hard, you know, Foucault is the, the complicator here, is like to recognize the ways in which so much discipline happens on the psychic level right now. So yeah, in other words, yeah. we don't need to control the population as long as we're in their heads. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I, I went to Catholic school, so I totally know what you mean. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, yeah. in, in spe speaking then of discipline, I did wanna, um, cause I, I'm gonna have to go in a second, but I wanted to let you talk a little bit about your experience working in prisons. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm curious about this in, from a number, number of different perspectives, but you talked about some of the the good you saw, well, so first, like, what was it exactly you, you, you were sure. doing? So I was approached by a couple of my just like most inspiring students to dream up a concept, which would be sort of like a peer mentored creative writing workshop in juvenile detention facilities. This was a spinoff of another program, a peer mentorship program that began at my university, John Carroll, in which students would go play basketball, eat pizza and do some sort of like peer character development with young men in juvenile detention center down here in Cleveland. And the student of mine who's African-American and, and really passionate about poetry thought that there really wasn't space for them to express and to articulate and reflect on their own lives in a deeply meaningful way in the context of this other very valuable program. And he said, why don't we do this thing that I love so much, which is like, yeah making poetry in a group and having people share their work. And so in 2018, we, I think it was 18, may have been 17, um, did a pilot of the program. And I, I basically led a, a very soft version of a kind of a workshop in which we read a couple poems on a theme and then in, created space and invited those folks in the detention center to write their own poems and we all shared them. And it was, absolutely just like so just stunning stunningly moving um first of all when you walk into the space i don't know if you've been to inside many prisons but they're really deeply depressed have you yeah, yeah. I, I had a well my grandparents were anti-death penalty activists so i when i was in high school i visited a guy who was on death row um, and so you go you go into those buildings and there's just so much super like, impressive yeah heavy energy right and they don't, and those young guys who were working with, they were all part of the other program. They had volunteered, but there was also a deep sense of uncertainty, uh, um, maybe a little bit of fear on the parts of our, us and maybe fear for them, but also just like confusion, maybe defensiveness. And 
all of that evaporated, you know, once we started talking about these poems that spoke to a specific experience that they, they had. So they shared their work. And at the end of it, we did like a little survey. And, and one of the people wrote on the survey was like, said, I felt like I had a family again. I mean, it, it absolutely wrecked me. Like, honestly, we didn't do anything. We just sat for an hour and talked about poems. But I think it was a sense, the twofold sense of like, not only being around a community of people who wanted to listen to you, but also like to be able to share something that you haven't been able to figure out a way to share in your own language. Um, I wouldn't call, you know, most of these guys that we've worked with, you know, like future professional poets. I don't sure. think there's, I don't see any of them as like a Dwayne Betts, you know, in the making. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that doesn't matter because like, the poetry in a way is like the occasion or the medium for a kind of transformation. And that's, that's yeah, what yeah. struck me so hard. And that somehow they were into it because they, they, they thought using language in this way, it was just kind of pleasurable and necessary. So that's been going on, you know, for the last four year, four or five years or so. We have a cohort that goes from my university to one of two local facilities and uh, Zach Thomas, who started Writers in Residence, um, I helped him get a fellowship from the Cleveland Foundation to make it his job. And so yeah. he was funded for two years and start now it's a nonprofit. And so every other month I'm on a board meeting as we sort of think about next steps for, you know, all around the state, we have cohorts going into juvenile detention facilities to work with folks. And so it's just really powerful. Yeah. And that, yeah, like that's such a, just an indisputable good that like, regardless of what it has to do with any other poetry, regardless of what it has to do with like a later moral or literary or intellectual effect, like that, that, that hour was good, like felt better, was good, like felt like family, just like, just that alone is just an indisputable good. I mean, it may be kind of like when my old guy friends and I get together and because we have to eat something, we cook together. And I mean, one of us is actually good at cooking. But like for the most part, we're that's not like Ray finds from the menu would not be pleased with our, with what comes out of it. But but it's there's a value in it just as a social phenomenon. So I wanted to ask, like I don't know if outside of Ohio you have any insight. Like is there a is there a path to look at or like a, a resource to look at if people are having any interest in doing this kind of thing? Well, I mean, we've thought about, like, are there any national networks of people who are working, doing workshops, like thinking about these questions in um, in relationship? And at present, there's no kind of national, nationwide network. But it would be very easy to go on Writers and Residents website and look at um, some of the prompts and some of the, like, the, the lessons that... Um, that Zach has been putting together and to adapt it for use. And so one of the things I, I hear in your question is like, how, how can people get involved in addition yeah, to like yeah. leading to it? I think there are tons of interesting programs all across the country that are doing this work for adults and for uh, youth. But if anybody's interested in, you know, dreaming up and thinking about starting their own cohort, like absolutely, you know, get in contact and, you know, th this can be done anywhere. But not just Ohio. It's just it, there's a, a series of steps one needs to take in order to engage with an institution. 
you know, an incarcerate, you know, a sort of a space of, you know, prison or whatever, and then all the things you need to do to prepare people to go in and, and the sorts of rules around conduct, things like that. But it's, it's all very doable. That was this week's episode. You can find Philip on Twitter at Philip Metris, P-H-I-L-I-P-M-E-T-R-E-S. Uh, his newest collection is Shrapnel Maps, and he's got a shitload of others. Thank you again to him. Thank you for listening. You can reach me, as always, at sleerickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.